Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Ben. Hey, Meister fans. It's Russell. Today on the show, we have Chris Devlin Young. During a 1982 mission with the United States Coast Guard, Chris's plane encountered heavy fog and crashed into a mountain range in Alaska. The crash killed several of those on board and left Chris paralyzed from the waist down. In a remarkable comeback, Chris has made his way to the top of numerous podiums in para-alpine skiing. He is a four-time Paralympic Games medalist, World Cup champion, and 10-time U.S. national champion. Chris, it's awesome to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Russell and, and uh, Ben. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is pretty fun and fantastic. Chris, it would be impossible to try to fit all of your accomplishments in that short bio. And Russell and I are really excited to pick your brain today and find out more. But before we do that, let's learn a little bit more about you personally. You know, I uh, in 1982, my life changed forever. And it's allowed me to travel the world, to make friends from Italy to Norway to Canada and Chile, and even in, I've got a new friend in Russia. You know, it's allowed me to be able to share my experience and my experience with my disability and the, uh, the challenges and hurdles that I face. I never thought in my wildest dreams growing up that I wouldn't continue to finish my career in the military mm-hmm. and like my father and retire and move off into retirement with a with a lovely wife and a family and never do anything inspiring at all and uh, been been thrust upon this stage of uh, athletics which I think was always in me but I never never really tapped into it and now absolutely every aspect of my life is designed around preparing to be able to show up at the top of a mountain race down that mountain as fast as possible and fast as possible for me is faster than everybody else (laughs) yeah you don't really have a choice you just kind of book it down it's unbelievable how fast you're going down and uh to kind of rewind a little bit that thing about you being not inspiring because you're in the military i mean you probably would have been very inspiring and it would have been great but what drew you towards the military why did you see your life going in that direction Growing up, I uh, played a couple of sports, wrestling being one of them. It gave me a sense of discipline that, you know, I never became a great wrestler. And I didn't put a lot of extra effort into it. But I could see the effort it took. And when it became time to start thinking about, you know, like in your junior year of high school or so, you know, high school students at the time and myself at that time, start thinking about what the heck am I going to do for the rest of my life. Um, my father had been in the military, and I had friends and other family members that had been in the military. It just seemed like a natural fit to me. I'm a patriot of my country, and I feel, and did feel at the time, and still do feel now. I owe my country as much as it's ever given me, if not more. That was, just seemed like the natural fit of a way to me to be able to... Uh, to give back to my country and 
my uh, father was in the Coast Guard, so I followed in his footsteps right into the Coast Guard. And now I want to kind of take our listeners to the time following after that accident because your life begins to completely change. And what was most difficult for you after that accident, both physically and mentally, in those first few months? For myself, you know, those first couple of months right after the plane crash were spent in most disbelief. And that disbelief lasted for years. But right after the accident, and in, inside those first months, it was just trying to comprehend what the doctors were telling me and what it really meant to be a paraplegic. I had no idea. And even though I was in the Coast Guard in a search and rescue branch of the military, we had a ton of medical training and a ton of first responder, first aid training. We really didn't have much training 32 years ago in spinal cord injuries. Today, mm. most people understand about mo immobilizing people before moving them and taking care of the neck just in case it's broken or taking care of the back. So when that realization did happen, and it did just inside those first couple of months, it took quite a while to get from the crash site to a veterans hospital in California where my early surgeries and rehab from the spinal cord injury took place. That day is, is a blank to me. But I remember the feeling. I, I think most it's a blank because it was a such a trauma that I blanked it out of my mind. But mm. I do remember the feeling of being told, this is it. You're not going to walk. You're going to use a wheelchair. And just the devastation of that realization, what do you mean I'm not going to walk? At the time when I was told I wasn't going to be mobile, I had no idea what immobility really was. Your mindset must have been just all over the place after the accident. And what were you doing on a day-to-day -day basis other than trying to rehabilitate your body? Yeah, and then when did you get introduced to monoskiing? For those couple of years that it took for me to, for, for those couple of years that it took for skiing to find me, because it really was alpine skiing that found me I didn't go out looking for it and when it did find me it changed my life forever and it's gotten me here today all these years later but for those couple of years I definitely was doing nothing nothing productive that's for sure everything I did was pretty darn destructive if it was just yelling at somebody that was trying to help me open the door at the bank or something like that um you know, somebody that saw me struggling in my wheelchair to get up a curb, they, they would come over and try to help or ask help, and I would jump down their throat because mm -hmm. at the time, I, uh, you know, I really lament that fact now and wish I could go back and tell everybody, oh, you know, I'm really sorry. I was pretty angry, and anger was at my own situation. It wasn't at you trying to help me, but... Uh, I, I lashed out in many, many different ways, either at myself or at my family or at just your basic innocent bystander. Yeah. I did not want to be disabled. And uh, I, I say that to myself. I uh, just today uh, at lunch during this certification that's happening here in Denver, I looked out at them and, and have told this to many people. And this is an open offer. 
to damn near anybody that uh, that might be listening, I want to get up and walk away. I live an amazing life, and I'm super fortunate, and I've traveled the world year after year and done some amazing things and won at the Paralympics at the Olympic level, and I've won at the World Championship level, and I've won at the X Games, and I've jumped into Corbett's Coulard, and and all of these different things and amazing things that I've been introduced to. I've sat at the bedside of a brand new injury and been able to talk to one of the military veterans and he was angry and I was able to relay my experience and say, Hmm. hey, it's not going to be perfect, but there's going to be some fun out there and life is going to go on and you take care of yourself and 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 things are going to get better. They're not going to be perfect. But if I could get up and walk away, I'd trade away all of it to get up and walk away and mm-hmm. never look back at the wheelchair. Yeah, so this might be a kind of a weird question, but it was something that I was wondering. And th- so there are adaptive athletes who were injured doing their sport, like they were injured skiing and now they do adaptive skiing. And then there are the adaptive athletes who got injured doing something else or an unrelated accident, such as the case with you from a psychological perspective, is the recovery process different? Well, I, I bet it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, only having one experience myself, the, mm-hmm. right. mm-hmm. the active person that becomes disabled and then finds athletics afterwards. I, uh, you know, I only had that Perspective, but I do have a lot of teammates and friends around the world that were skiers before mm-hmm. and became disabled either snowboarding or skiing or a different accident, but returned to the sport and the activity that they loved skiing. And I do know that we all say the same thing. And that thing is that for us, coming up out of the wheelchair, skiing is pure freedom. You know, I was skiing with Klaus Obermeier a bunch of years ago, and we're riding up the lift, and he was talking about his new hips. He just had a hip replacement. He was getting ready to do another one. He was so happy because it didn't hurt anymore. And he looked over me and said, you know, skiing is like flying. Somebody takes you to the top of the mountain and hands you a pair of wings and says, here, fly. And for us, up out of the wheelchair, it really is. It is like flying. So, so the... Uh, you know, for the person that knew how to ski before, there's going to be a transition period of you can't ski the or you can't ride the exact same way as you did before. Mm-hmm. But my legs don't get tired all day. I ski from sunup to sundown, and it's nonstops from top to bottom, and there's no lactic acid buildup, and, <laughs> and my knees don't hurt, and uh, I just have fun every moment. Wow. So you found this solace in skiing, and it's really exciting and you have done it very successfully i mean we talked about the paralympics and the world cups so let's talk more about the skiing itself how fast are you going in maybe a downhill course yeah we um we typically in a downhill race um some of the larger ones like world championship level world cup paralympic level reach as sit skiers no, as mono skiers mm-hmm. into the middle seventy miles per hour, wow. and uh, the fastest I've ever been clocked is eighty-two miles an hour wow. at the twenty-four hours of Aspen event. And just for point of reference for our listeners, the regular Olympian downhill racers are going also around seventy-five, eighty miles an hour at their top speeds, right? 
Oh, yes, they are. Yeah, I think only there's a couple of races in Europe. Kitzbühel mm -hmm. and Wengen. I think they've reached 100 miles an hour now, but only in one venue. Uh, so most of their races, those guys top out, you know, high 70s, low 80s. And I heard that in Sochi, for example, you're doing the same course as them, correct? Yeah, we did. You know, it's, I've been to five Paralympics now, and my first being Lillehammer in Norway. And there we ran on the women's track. Hmm. And then the next Paralympics for me was Salt Lake. And we started on the men's track. And then cut across at the bear trap and finished on the women's course. Hmm. And then in 2006 in Torino, we did the full men's course. And then in 2010 in Vancouver, we ran the full women's course. And then in Sochi, we ran on the men's course this time. So, I mean, you're going this fast. For someone who has two skis, I mean... They're falling a lot of the time, too. You must take these gnarly crashes, yeah. Yeah, I have, boy, yeah, Russell. The, um, <laughs> the gnarliest crash I ever took was in Japan, and the result of that was several months in the hospital with two broken legs. Oh, um, wow. Busted up my ribs pretty good and bruised the crap out of my face, but uh, nothing, nothing more serious than that. And I say it was the gnarliest crash because it looked really horrible and horrific if you watch the video, but I couldn't feel it. My legs are paralyzed. And it was one of the crazy weird gifts of paralysis is that I couldn't feel the pain of the broken legs. It was the cracked ribs and the bruised face that hurt the most. Is there a really big community of uh, mono skiers competing that you're friends with and you compete with? There is. There is. In, in para-alpine skiing, the... Registered racers is, I think it's close to 300 people deep around the world. And, uh, and then the pipeline past that is, there's probably several, under, several hundred other people that are in that pipeline of potential skiers that are dabbling in racing and don't quite have their license yet and such. Hmm. And then at the World Cup level, the, and the highest levels of world championships and Paralympics in the sitting category, we typically race between 40 and 50 athletes. I read somewhere there are three classes, right, of para-alpine skiing, the visually impaired standing skiers and then sit skiers. And are you competing against just the other sit skiers or is the system designed so you're competing against all of them? Well, right now, yes, I am competing against just the other sit skiers. Okay. There are three categories, the visually impaired, and inside of that category, there are several subcategories. And to encompass a totally blind athlete or a partially sighted athlete. And in that category of visually impaired, you have to ski with a guide. And mm -hmm. that guide is also an athlete, but it's also a piece of equipment that helps you get down the hill. So if your guide fell and you were a partially sighted athlete that could conceivably continue on in the race course, not see very well, but continue on. But if your guide fell, you're disqualified. Um, you have hmm. to finish with all your equipment. Just like I do in my sit ski, I have to finish with all my equipment. The standing categories are all the different standing disabilities, arm amputations and leg amputations, whether skiing with 
prosthetics or without prosthetics, mm. all the different walking disabilities like cerebral palsy and, uh, and some of the other uh, walking disabilities and such. And then you have the sitting category. And that encompasses all of the full amputee and single amputee skiers that choose to sit down mm-hmm. and all of the paraplegics and partial quadriplegics that that choose to race. And we also have a bunch of subcategories. And then there is a factoring system that kind of the very similar to the golf handicap that you can compare yourself mm. against the best in the world by by being able to calculate your handicap well we use that a similar formula to calculate raw time in real time and the the result is is a time at the bottom of the mountain that reflects your mobility and some people like myself are very highly mobile disabled athlete and then there are others of my teammates that are less mobile but we get to compete side by side with the factor system and it kind of levels the playing field there's always room for improvement but uh, it, the, the factoring system works pretty good cool hmm. something i was thinking about is the natural progression of skiing back when it was invented people probably started racing first and then eventually they started building jumps and doing that. Do you see a similar progression with mono skiing? Do you think it'll ever be a freestyle Olympic competition for uh, mono skiing? That's an interesting question. I like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Freestyle mono skiing this year for the first time, Paris snowboarding happened in Sochi in Korea in, in 2018, there'll be, para mono skiing and and it'll be like we do already at the x games in mono skis and sit skis we compete in skier cross uh, wow. mono skier x so we use the most of the same course which there's uh, the organizers change a couple of the jumps for us to help accommodate for the fact that we're just on this little shock observer that really only has a couple of inches of travel and some of the jumps in X Games are step-ups, where you actually have to step up, lift your legs up, mm. and physically, we just can't do that. We're strapped to this 30 to 40-pound machine mm-hmm. that when it takes off in the air, that's your trajectory. Yeah. And you don't get to <laughs> change it during flight, like stepping up or something. So they uh, set us up a feature that will allow us to go, to go around but still, still get the risk and the danger and the, and the excitement of those types of features. So in the future, the uh, more and more monoskiers around the world are going to start doing like para snowboarding did for its first trial here in Sochi this last time around. Uh, we'll have a, I really predict, yeah, we'll have a field. And from that, that will create all kinds of other things i have competed myself in the extreme championships before it was even called the free skiing circuit and such and uh, actually did quite well made it to the last day in the alpine and snowboard i took a uh, took a snowboard and mounted it underneath my my monoski and was able to compete in the same year in a snowboard and alpine but but uh, I was all by myself, and and I was being judged against completely able-bodied athletes. So there's wow. a lot of interest out there, and a lot of 
my teammates and, and friends around the world, we all do just about all the same things as anybody else. So I can fully see a class of monoskiers in free skiing competition, absolutely. Yeah, you've been breaking all sorts of boundaries in the field of adaptive sports. You're known as a man of firsts, I like that, and you, you're an icon for so many people and really proving that the obstacles can only hold you back if you let them. So what's next for you? I mean, I saw that you're you're inducted into the California Sports Hall of Fame next to LaDainian Tomlinson and Troy Gloss, and like you said, first able-bodied athlete to compete in the skier cross event. What's next? Wow, you know... Um I, I don't know at the moment. <laughs> uh, you know, I just finished this season, and I'm still considering racing. I really am, and I, uh, I'm right now currently ranked number one in the world in downhill, and in the top ten in the world in two of the other events, two of the other five disciplines, alpine skiing disciplines, and uh, I don't really see myself slowing down one little bit, and so continuing to race is absolutely and. I'm not really sure where those uh, those new opportunities are going to come. The uh, the opportunities that I've had in the past all kind of came along because I was in the right place at the right time, which is you know kind of interesting because I consider I was in the wrong place at the right time hmm. to become disabled in the first place. But it's led me to so many places. You know, I'm pretty fortunate. Ironic. Yeah, yeah it seems like on your downtime, you get to do some pretty cool stuff, hanging out with presidents and uh, <laughs> going to the ESPYs. You got nominated for uh, one of the awards in 2011. Is that right? Yes, I did. I was nominated for Male Athlete of the Year. Yeah. Oh, wow. Very uh, impressive. Didn't win that time, but I'm going to put together a better season and win the next time. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So I've always had this question, and this is kind of random, for people at the ESPYs. And they always zoom out of all these people having these conversations, like you talking to LeBron James or whatever. What are you guys talking about? Like, what's your small talk look like? <laughs> The conversation I remember the most was with Clay Matthews from the uh, Green Bay Packers. And and uh, I was off getting out of my wheelchair. I saw this couch in the corner, and I jumped out, jumped out of my wheelchair and started relaxing on this couch. And a big group of people came over, and boom, there he was, Clay Matthews, <laughs> sitting right next to me. And I thought, we, we talked about sports. You know, we talked about how hard it is to stay at this kind of a level, mm. constantly having to be on everywhere you go. Somebody wants to know what's going on and somebody wants to know, are you ready for next year? And somebody wants to get your autograph or and such. And for me, going to the ESPYs and that my first trip to the ESPYs, it, it was uh, it was kind of amazing to uh, to sit there and make small talk with one of my idols <laughs> and for him to treat me with the exact same respect I was treating him. It's quite a validation as an athlete to uh, just be another athlete. And we, we just happen to be the athletes that are among the best in the world. So, <laughs> and as far as we know, nobody else does this in the universe. So technically we're the best in the world. Exactly. The universe. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> Very good point. Yeah, that's awesome. Someday Ben and I will be at the ESPYs. No, we'll, we'll be see. at the podcast. The podcasting awards. ESPYs. We're not really yeah. sure what those are yet, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see. But, All right. Um, I guess uh, for our listeners, you're this super extreme outdoor athlete. And so we always like to talk about gear a little bit. Is there any piece of gear that you think an average consumer could use that you've used that you're just in love with? Well, 
You know, not necessarily the average consumer because I repurpose gear mm-hmm. and and such. I use regular skis and I'll put on a fat ski for a powder day. Not too fat because then if I put on too fat, I ride too high in the snow and I don't get my face shots. So <laughs> I keep my skis kind of narrow even when it's, uh, when it's kind of bottomless powder. But I take bindings. I use – currently right now I use a binding that has a DIN setting of 30. Wow. And then on top of that, I use a block to to disable the binding really and prevent it from ever opening up. Wow. Uh, for myself in the monoski, it's a suspension system with a shock absorber generally inside that suspension that if it doesn't have a ski underneath it, it's essentially a pogo stick. And <laughs> when you jump really hard on a pogo stick, it it kicks you pretty high and and then you come down harder so it kicks you even higher and that's <laughs> that's catastrophic in a in a monoski. That sounds like a recipe for disaster. Especially in steep terrain. <laughs> what kind of skis do you actually ride on? Well, right now I race on head skis and I have an old pair of atonics that I free ski on. And um, a friend of mine up in Canada has been trying to get me on some Solomons for free skiing. And uh, in, in X Games, I uh, have even gone so far as to take two skis, two snow skis, and stack them on top of each other to create a platform that theoretically is unbreakable. Hmm. I ended up breaking it anyway, but (laughs) the theory was sound at the time. (laughs) So I was watching this speech that you gave, and you said a quote that kind of resonated with me, and it was, it's not about what you have lost in life, rather what you've been able to give. And you've done a lot of giving, uh, giving back to veterans um, and other disabled athletes. How special is it to be able to give back to your community? Yeah, you know, the, uh, the gentleman that convinced me to ski, I don't stay in touch with, and I really wish I did because I owe him a huge thank you. Mm. But the two gentlemen that taught me my very first ski lesson, Dick Wilson, a 10th Mountain Division veteran who mm. fought on River Ridge and was disabled, huh on River Ridge during World War II, and Sandy Trombetta, the originator of the Disabled American Veterans Winter Sports Clinic that happens every year now, I think it's next year for its 30th anniversary, that I learned to ski at at the very first one. Those guys gave me a gift, and this gift of skiing that I feel obligated to pass on to everybody, whether it's taking a moment to talk to a grade school class, whether it's teaching a lesson out on the snow to somebody who's brand new to skiing or somebody that's been around a long time, whether it's coaching a clinic for fellow athletes or whether it's kicking the butt of all the possible racers out there to prove (laughs) that my skills are better than theirs or, you know, whether it's just stopping in the airport or when somebody says, hey, wow, look at that wheelchair. Um, what do you got going there? Taking a moment to not yell at them like I did when I was first disabled and explain to them a little bit the possibilities that life has in store. It's kind of my sacred mission to, uh, to share that good fortune that I have because of skiing with the whole world. And uh, it's quite a passion that I have for, for skiing. And, and you know, I just hope I can help other people get the bug for being active 
Maybe yeah. it doesn't have to be skiing. Maybe maybe it's just going out for a walk around the block with your family. But you know, we're a pretty selfish world and a pretty selfish race of people that tend to think about ourselves quite a bit. And I've tried to make it my mission to uh, to give more than I receive. Yeah, you've been doing a pretty good job. We're we're very impressed. Um, you know, we've had such a good time talking to you on the show, and I'm really happy that I finally talked to someone at the ESPYs. That goes on the bucket <laughs> list. Stuff. Yeah, if anyone else wants to, uh, any of our listeners want to check out any more information on Chris, uh, you can go to his website, gocdy.com. You can find pictures and uh, any other resources that Chris was talking about on our website, mtnmeister.com. And check out his Meister profile, and you'll find all that information. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Russell. Thanks, Ben. Hey, Meister fans. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Chris Devlin-Young. Ben and I are mixing things up this week a little bit. We've got a a big gear giveaway that we're going to be doing. And so if you share any of our podcast episodes on Facebook, then you'll be entered to win. And we'll reach out to you and hook you up with some awesome gear. So take advantage of this soon because the gear will go pretty fast. Hey, we've got some scarves, some turtles, some hats. Some sweet compression socks, compression shorts. Turtles? What are turtles? Turtle things. Neck gaiters. So. Neck gaiters? <laughs> uh, don't you call those turtles? There are turtle necks, and those are, it's like a shirt. We don't I have any of those. Turtles, but... We only have turtles. We have, okay, we don't have any turtles. We don't have turtles. We have neck gaiters. We got this cool radio from Brunton, Yak Tracks, a, a ton of cool stuff. So check it out. We'll Tons hook you guys up. Join us next episode when we talk to Todd Franzen. Todd was a snowboarding prodigy back in the 90s and later in life was diagnosed with cancer. Hear about his incredible recovery in a really meaningful organization that has flourished as a result of that. 